Begin discussion. The Jogcast listeners, we know you're out there. With George Bendo, Alex Clark, Ian Harrison, Haritina Mogoshanu, Ian Morrison, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, November 2015 edition. Hello everyone and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Charlie Walker and joining me in the studio today are Benjamin Short and George Bendo. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, Alex and I interviewed Dr. Caroline D'Angelo about pulsars and accretion and Ian Morrison and Haratina Morgashanu take a look at what's happening in the November night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. In the news this month, gravitational wave rumours abound, great red spot shrinks, and astronomers open a discussion about sexual harassment. Following its reopening, as discussed on last month's Jodcast, the LIGO Gravitational Wave Observatory has already this month generated an exciting, plausible rumour of a detection of a gravitational wave event. Arizona State University cosmologist and science communicator Lawrence Krauss was the first to publicly comment on a rumour which had already been circulating amongst scientists, tweeting... Amazing, if true, will post details if it survives. Such a detection would indeed be amazing, representing the first time a gravitational wave has been directly detected, confirming a major prediction of Einstein's general relativity and providing immediate return on LIGO's $200 million recent overhaul and upgrade. The LIGO collaboration themselves were understandably coy about the rumour, with spokesperson Gabriela González from Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, stating, the official response is that we're analysing the data. The status of the rumour is interesting. It could be true, false, or both. The last strong rumour of a gravitational wave detection by LIGO was in 2010, during a data collection run by the pre-upgrade observatory. This detection was real. LIGO scientists had seen it in their data, It had met their criteria for being classified as real, as opposed to a statistical fluke or a mistaken noise event, and the collaboration had even written two scientific papers describing it, which were complete and ready to be published. Unfortunately, whilst the data was real, the gravitational wave signal was not. The data, corresponding to that expected from the merger of a black hole binary system, was simulated data, injected into the streams coming from LIGO's two instruments in Hanford, Washington and Livingston, Louisiana. That this event was a so-called blind injection was known to only three members of the 900-person collaboration. That the blind injection procedure existed was known to the whole collaboration, however, so there was not too much disappointment when it was revealed at a conference to have all been a drill. Such blind data challenges are invaluable in testing equipment, data analysis methods, and also the mentality of scientists, proving that the methods work and that the people involved are capable of avoiding factors such as confirmation bias, in which analysts can, even unconsciously, favour data which meets their preconceived expectations. By showing that their analysis pipelines were able to perform correctly on the simulated data, any future real detections by LIGO will be regarded as that much more believable. It is also true that the 2010 test was not a complete success. The detection appeared to be coming from the direction of Canis Major, 
and quickly became known as the Big Dog event. But the simulated signal which had been injected was supposed to correspond to a gravitational wave event in a completely different direction on the sky. The error was quickly traced to a pernicious source known to all physicists. A sign error in some of the code used by the injection team had in fact caused the signal to have been injected upside down. Also in the news this month, analysis of images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope have shown that Jupiter's great red spot has shrunk to its smallest size yet. The great red spot is a distinctive storm which has raged in Jupiter's southern hemisphere for at least 350 years. It is tens of thousands of kilometres across, big enough to swallow more than one whole Earth, and hosts wind speeds of over 250 miles an hour. The spot has, however, been shrinking for several years, with at least a 15% decline in its diameter observed between 1996 and 2006. The latest observations were taken by Hubble in January of this year, as part of a set of images mapping the entire planet twice in a 10-hour period. The atmosphere of Jupiter is a complex and beautiful place, composed mostly of hydrogen and helium, along with methane, ammonia, hydrogen sulphide, water and more. The atmosphere evolves significantly on even the short timescales covered by the new observations, but the red spot itself rotates around once every six Earth days or 14 Jovian days. Predicting what will happen to the storm next is hard. Listeners may be familiar with the fact that weather forecasting has significant difficulties even in situ here on Earth. It is understood that Jupiter's climate is changing, with a variation of up to 10 Kelvin expected, and apparently driving new storms, such as Oval BA or Red Spot Junior, which formed south of the Great Red Spot in 2000 from several smaller storms known about since the 1930s. And finally, astronomers this month have been reacting to the news of a sexual harassment case involving prominent exoplanet researcher Jeff Marcy. The news was broken when the BuzzFeed news website published that Marcy had been the subject of an investigation by the University of California at Berkeley, his employer, into harassment offences against multiple female students between 2001 and 2010. Reaction from the astronomy community at large has been significant, expressing support for the scientists who were victims and concerns at how UC Berkeley dealt with Marcy's damaging actions. Marcy is an extremely prominent astronomer, notable as being one of the first to discover exoplanets, planets orbiting stars other than our own sun, and was a tenured professor at UC Berkeley, member of the team working on NASA's Kepler satellite, and had recently led the Breakthrough Listen project, awarded $100 million by a private benefactor to look for signs of life on exoplanets. How astronomy deals with harassment by prominent individuals is a significant topic, it is important to remember that the field is in no way immune to sexual harassment incidents. In the case of Jeff Marcy, it took nearly 10 years before a joint complaint was made by four people who had either been victims or witnessed his inappropriate behaviour. At least one of the complainants pointed to Marcy's actions as a strong component in their reasons for leaving astronomy. Much contention has focused on the response from the authorities at UC Berkeley, who only weakly disciplined Marcy, providing expectations on his future interactions with students, which he was to follow or possibly face sanctions in the future. Furthermore, 
details of the investigation would not have been made public were it not for the BuzzFeed News article. This pattern of long-term transgressions only weakly punished when finally reported supports the widely held perception within academia that institutions can often be reluctant to discipline or remove brilliant scientists who supply considerable prestige and research income. This can lead to senior academics being seen as becoming almost untouchable, contrasting with the dispensable nature of more junior students and postdocs who face fierce competition for short-term contracts in a small community and undergraduates concerned for their academic success. Incidents of sexual harassment and sexism are also frequently pointed to as an underlying cause for astronomy's gender imbalance, which becomes increasingly severe at more senior levels. 2013 data from the AAS Committee on the Status of Women in Astronomy shows a decline in the representation of women as careers progress from around 25% at grad student to around 10% at full professor, replicated in similar data sets from the UK. Similar gender disparities appear in amateur astronomy, with only 9% of Sky and Telescope magazine's subscribers identifying as female and some 14% of Jodcast listeners when last surveyed in 2010. Following the reporting of the case, the wider astronomical community has provided a much stronger and more inclusive response than the formal authorities involved. Statements from the American Astronomical Society, Royal Astronomical Society, some 3,000 astronomy professionals, and UC Berkeley staff, postdocs and graduate students all condemned Marcy's actions and Berkeley's weak response and supported the victims. In particular, the staff at Marcy's institution commented that they believe he cannot perform the functions of a faculty member in terms of having interactions with students in light of his actions. This has apparently had an effect, with Marcy announcing his resignation from his position at the University of California and in the Breakthrough Listen collaboration. The instance clearly needs to be part of an ongoing process in which astronomy and academia in general becomes more open and better at dealing with harassment complaints. Whilst all major institutions will have anti-harassment policies complying with local laws, these policies are seldom enforced and seen to be enforced, creating an unwelcoming atmosphere for anyone who could be made to feel vulnerable. Hopefully, the news about Jeff Marcy will continue the progress which has already been made in making the astronomy community as open and inclusive as possible. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, Charlie and Alex interview Dr. Caroline D'Angelo about pulsars and accretion. Today I'm joined by two people, Dr. Caroline D'Angelo from the University of Leiden. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, also a newcomer to the Jogcast, Alex Clark, who's going to hopefully be doing lots of interviews in the future. Hi. So welcome as well. Thanks. So Caroline's been here at JBCA giving a talk on uh, transitional millisecond pulsars. We'll get to that in a minute. But... Um, First, could you give us a, a give us a, an introduction to what it is that well where you work and what it is that you study and that sort of thing? Yeah, of course. Um, so I I work right now in Leiden University, which is in the Netherlands. Um, I'm originally from Canada, from Toronto, where I went to. I was born, raised there, and I went to university there. And then for my PhD, um, I came to Europe. Actually, I did my PhD in Munich, in Germany. That's a long way. That is. 
Aslana, why did you decide to go to Germany? Well, um, I was kind of bored of being in Canada, to be honest, and I was looking for, for an interesting new adventures, and I kind of applied to Germany on a whim, and then they offered to fly me to Germany and visit. So And they paid for it. And they paid for everything. So I uh, had never been to Europe, and I took them up on it, and when I was there, I really liked it. So then I, so then I moved there and did my PhD there. Manchester should keep that in mind for recruiting other PhDs <laughs> in the future. Yeah, cool. Um, so you focus on neutron stars, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mostly focus actually on on accretion, which I think we'll talk about. Um, and what I've been mostly doing in the last few years is is really studying neutron stars and how how they evolve, what they look like, how we understand what the the light that we see from them. Can you tell us maybe just a quick uh, overview of how you get a neutron star? And- properties of a neutron star. Yeah, well, I think neutron stars, um, I'm a bit biased, but I think that they're pretty much the most exotic um, in, uh, objects in the universe. So they're, they're incredibly extreme in all possible ways. They form when you have a really massive star, so maybe 100 times more massive than our sun, um, runs out of fuel and it just explodes in an explosion called a supernova. And we see those from time to time. And at the end of the explosion, all you have left is this tiny speck of ultra-dense material about the mass of the sun, but it's only about the size of the city. So it's about 10, 20 kilometers across. But because it's so massive and so tiny, um, it has a gravity that's about 200 billion times stronger than the Earth's. So it's just a really extreme situation, a really extreme environment. And at the same time, because it's so dense and it was it evolved from a really massive star, the magnetic field of the massive star, so a fairly weak magnetic field, basically gets all jammed together into this tiny little object. So the magnetic fields that you have in, str- in stars like that are at least 10,000 times stronger than anything we could ever create on Earth. So you have this really tiny, dense speck of matter, huge gravity, huge magnetic field. Mm, they're some of the most extreme objects in the universe, I guess, mm. and, and they they spin as well, don't they? They spin quite fast. Yes. Yeah, so this is another this is another extreme fact about them. You know, just like when when you have when you're skating um, or you see somebody with their with their arms out and you you suddenly pull in your arms and you go faster. The exact same thing happens with a neutron star. So you have this really massive star that then collapses, and as it collapses, it starts to spin much faster. So neutron stars can have incredibly fast spins. So typically a few seconds, but even as fast as you know they can spin up to seven hundred times a second. And is that is that the the limit of how fast that they can spin theoretically? Like, what happens after that? Well, that's a really interesting question because if you if you make a theoretical model of how fast they could spin before they actually just broke apart, you actually find out that they could spin almost twice as fast as that. So that's a really interesting astronomical question: why they don't spin faster than about seven hundred times a second? So, so seven hundred times a second. Could you could you put that into context, maybe, and just just how fast? Or what, what is that comparable to? Well, I think it's it's actually a bit difficult to find things on Earth to compare that to. So um, one of the things I've thought about is 700 times a second is about um, less, just less than two milliseconds, so two thousandth of a second. And if you look at the um, the electrical signals in your brain, so the time it takes for electrons to travel or electrical impulses to travel across your brain, that's about 10 times faster than that. So... Basically, this thing spins around 10 times faster than you can think. Wow. So I think that's pretty, 
some kind of idea of how fast they are. It's hard to get your head around that. Yeah. yeah. So in your area of study, you don't just study neutron stars that are on their own. You, you study them when, they, when they've got like a, a companion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so that's what we call a binary system. Yeah. So as you said before, these uh, these neutron stars form in like dramatic explosions. And yeah. Uh, how often does one keep its companion and not just blow it away when it explodes? So. Well, that's a bit of a hard question to answer, actually. So um, a lot of a lot of stars that we see in our galaxy, just normal stars, actually have a companion to begin with. And, um, and we know that there's a lot of neutron stars that also have a companion. But really the reason, um, so we, so we know that sometimes they do, even if they don't always do that. Um, but the real reason to study them when they study neutron stars that are in a binary system, so with a stellar companion, is that they're just much easier because sometimes if the companion is very, very close to the neutron star, the neutron star can actually rip off material from the, from the companion and that can fall onto the, star itself and that's a process called accretion how close are we talking here these two objects um well really close so they so typically the the stars that we study which are accreting systems have a, a neutron star so this tiny little star it's 20 kilometers across and then a regular star a little bit less massive than the sun that's it's orbiting around it you know every six hours or so so it's really a distance of about the radi- 100 times the radius of the sun. So 100 times bigger than the sun wow. is large. It's really quite close. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's really, really close. So you study these these binary stars which are tearing off matter from their companions and accreting. You gave a, you gave a great uh, talk and you said that accretion is one of the most efficient engines in the universe uh, because they're, well, they're just really efficient at producing en- energy from, from this process of... Uh, tearing apart matter and funneling it onto the star. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, so it's actually, yeah, so accretion is the most, accretion onto an object like a neutron star that's so incredibly dense is the most efficient engine in the wor- in in the universe. And it's, it's the most theoretically efficient engine. So, you know, when you think about if you, if you burn a match or something, you get a bit of energy. And the most efficient engine we know, the most efficient energy um, that we can make on Earth is like a nuclear explosion nuclear processes in the sun or or nuclear bombs but actually just accretion so basically just a, a a little bit of gas falling onto the surface of the star falls with so much energy that it actually releases more energy than it would in a nuclear explosion so if you kind of think it so accretion is not that hard to understand um if you just think about the way that gravity works on earth so if you take a watermelon for example to the top of a really tall building on earth and you drop it by the time it reaches on the, the ground it's just going to splat smash apart. So that energy that it releases is really accretion energy. Now, if you do the same experiment on a neutron star and you just drop a a watermelon, it's going to release a lot more energy than a nuclear bomb that would flatten a city. And that's due to its incredibly strong gravitational field. That's exactly, yeah. Cool. And uh, this produces really, really bright sources, which is why you can see them. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So, um, So it's a really small object but it's accreting and it's releasing so much energy that we can see them on earth even though they're you know hundreds of billions of kilometers away okay so uh, in your in your talk you were talking about this thing called eddington yeah and and um, a bit about how there's a certain limit about the amount of brightness we can see from the matter accreting can you talk a little bit about about that and what exactly you mean by eddington yeah so the eddington limit so eddington was a very famous uh, english astronomer 
And the Eddington limit was a, a theoretical idea that he proposed. Basically, um, he, if you imagine, um, if you imagine a star that's incredibly bright, like our sun, actually it, it's so bright that the light itself has a sort of pressure. So it actually starts pushing things away from it. So, um, comets, for example, when they get very close to the sun, start getting the tails start getting pushed away just from the light of the sun. But you can imagine that the brighter something is, the more pressure it has, the more light will, will push it away. So the Eddington limit is the limit where the rate at which you're adding material by accretion and releasing all this energy is balanced by the, the, uh, the sun's ability or the star's ability to push it away. So it's this kind of balance. So you can't get any brighter than the Eddington limit in this simple picture. So in your, in your work, you were, you talked a little bit about how some of these systems break that law and actually they get a lot brighter than you would normally expect from the theory of Eddington. That's right. So Edding, so Eddington's idea was that you could never get brighter than, than the limit that he proposed, the Eddington limit. But actually, um, astronomers have now discovered for sure that some neutron stars, some accreting neutron stars break that limit by about a hundred times. So this is a very interesting discovery last year, not, not for me, but for, from, from other astronomers that, um, that you have a neutron star that you, that you know is a neutron star because you can actually see it, um, pulsing that, w- which we'll explain in a minute. And, and it's really, really bright. So you know that it's a neutron star, but it's a hundred times brighter than it should be. So that's, yeah. 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 That's really quite something. So, so you mentioned pulsations there. Yes. Can we, can we come to that and explain just exactly what is a, how does a neutron star pulse? Yeah. So like I mentioned before, um, neutron stars have really strong magnetic fields, incredibly strong. And when they're accreting, what tends to happen is that as the, as the accreting gas gets very close to the neutron star, it starts getting drawn along the lines of a magnetic field. So if you imagine like the magnetic fields, field lines that you imagine in a, in a permanent magnet, say, um, all of the matter starts to stream along the poles of the magnet. So the point where the lines all come together. So rather than, rather than see emission, rather than see the light coming from everywhere, you're only going to see the light coming from really the pole of the magnetic, of the pole of the magnet of the neutron star. So if that magnet, now you imagine the pole is kind of rotating around because the neutron star is spinning really fast. Every time the, uh, every time the pole sweeps in front of your line of sight, so it sweeps in front of the Earth, you're going to see it as a pulsar. So we actually detect most of the neutron stars that we see, we see because we see them as pulsars. And that was discovered here, of course, at Jodrell Bank uh, about 50 years ago. Earlier you mentioned that neutron stars can get to, well, 100 times as bright as the uh, the Eddington luminosity. So that's incredibly bright. But actually, one of your interests is on the dimmer neutron stars. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So, so I think another way that neutron stars are so extreme is that not only do they get very bright, but the same star, um, can, can suddenly drop, um, by a million times and it become, can become incredibly faint as well. And we don't really understand very well how that happens, why it becomes suddenly so faint and so quickly. So they can do this in a, in a, over a month. So I'm really interested in answering, in, in investigating how this actually works and studying these neutron stars that are incredibly faint to understand what's going on. And when these, when these neutron stars go faint, uh, how do you see them? Do they emit by a different mechanism or do they emit different, uh, do they emit different types of radiation? 
Um, so they, so they can. So mostly, even when they're extremely faint, if they're close by, then you can see them with X-ray telescopes. So that's usually, that's usually how we see them. So like I, like I talked, I mentioned in my talk, we, even when they're very faint, yeah, you can detect them with X-ray, X-ray satellites. So in your talk, you, you, you talked about a specific object um, that you study called transitional millisecond pulsars. Could you talk a bit about um, what that, that means? Yes, absolutely. So um, these are, you know, even, even though all neutron stars are really exciting, transitional millisecond pulsars are, incre- are especially exciting um, because they really represent a very important link between most of the pulsars that we see and the accreting pulsars. So, um, so most of the pulsars that we actually, uh, that we see in the sky are, are radio pulsars. So we only see them with radio emission and there's no gas accreting onto them. And, um, the fastest pulsars that we see that are spinning, you know, up to 700 times a second, it's always been a mystery how they, how they can spin so fast. So it was always thought that, um, they, they spin so fast. We see them spinning so fast because they have been accreting a lot of gas and that's been making them spin faster over time. But we never saw that. We never saw that happening. And then on the other hand, we have these very bright X-ray pulsars or X-ray, X-ray sources that are, um, that are also accreting and seemed to be the earlier stages of the radio pulsars. But finally, a few years ago, um, somebody, some, some astronomers in Canada discovered this source, uh, the, the one that I talked about in my talk called, uh, J1023 is our name for it. Why is it called J? What, what do the numbers mean? So J1023 plus 0038, um, there, all of these pulsars are always named with a convention of where they're found on the sky. So it tells so they're you. they're basically just coordinates. It's some kind of coordinate system, yeah. Usually according to the, the, the object, the telescope that discovers them. Right. So this, this source is really exciting because it was the first source ever discovered to actually switch from being an X-ray source. So an accreting source to being a radio pulsar. And it made this switch, um, several times now. So it, it finally represented the missing link between the radio pulsars that we see spinning very quickly and the accreting pulsars and proved that one comes from the other. How long does it spend in each sort of mode? Well, so this is a this is an interesting um, question because so far we've only discovered a few of these sources. So there's only three transitional millisecond pulsars that are known for sure. But J1023, for example, which is the oldest one that we know, um, seems to switch between being a radio pulsar and an accreting pulsar every five or ten years. So here in Manchester, there's a lot of people who work on pulsars. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're you're familiar with many of them. Um, have you worked with any of them in this work or in any other work? Um, so in this in this work, I haven't uh, directly worked with them yet. But in Manchester, there is a lot of interest in this new type of source, these transitional millisecond pulsars, and some of the um, some of the latest work on these sources is being done by people in Manchester. Could you tell us a bit about what your main conclusions were from your talk and sort of the main results? So I've been, I've been recently studying J1023 with, with the same observers who discovered it. And recently we found that in the accreting state, so when it's showing a lot of x-rays, we can actually learn a lot about the, the nature of the accretion flow. So it's one of these really faint x-rays, uh, really faint neutron stars that we see, and we want to understand what was happening. So, we know, um, we know that J1023 is spinning really, really fast, about 600 times every second, almost. Mm. 
And it was always thought that when it's really, really faint, um, none of the, all of the gas that was trying to fall onto the surface of the neutron star would get flung away by the magnetic field. So if you imagine that the magnetic field is sort of this really fast spinning thing at the center of the, you know, surrounding the pulsar, surrounding the neutron star, whenever material, whenever this little bit of gas would try to fall onto the surface, it would just get flung away by the magnetic field. And therefore there'd be no accretion and then there'd be no brightness and that's why it's dim. Right, yeah. basically. Yeah. So, so, so the idea was always when these were first discovered is that none of the gas actually reaches the surface of the neutron star. So we never see any pulsations when it's bright in x-rays. But what was discovered is that actually we do see pulsations. And even though, even though it's really, really faint, we actually do see pulsations, which means that some gas actually is getting onto the surface of the neutron star. And what I presented in my talk, the newest discovery, is that actually this tiny bit of gas that's um, that's getting onto the surface isn't actually changing the rate at which the star is spinning very much. So usually we think that over long periods of time, the gas that you get falling on is making the star spin much faster, or it can also make it spin slower. But in this case, in J2023, it's not actually changing the spin rate. And this is very exciting for me. Because, uh, in particular, the model that we can use to understand this, the picture that we have, is one that I developed in my PhD work called the trapped disk. And it's essentially a way for low accretion rates onto the surface of a neutron star, even if it's spinning really, really fast. And you call this the trapped disk. That's right. Because you essentially, rather than flinging all of this material out when it reaches the magnetic field, instead you have this disk that stays very close to the very close to the neutron star and isn't and is actually continues to be able to f- fall onto the surface and feed it uh, must be quite rewarding to predict that and then you know many years later to finally observe and prove the work you've done before yeah it's really exciting and it's really satisfying also to have a very good proof like this that um that can't really be that it's, it's not easy to find other explanations for yeah. how this is happening yeah. so that was quite yeah. satisfying and Going into the future, what, what what are you hoping to discover next? Or are you going to be looking at this source? Are you going to be looking for more of these sources? Well, actually, um, so most of my work is actually theoretical. So I don't do a lot of um, I don't do a lot of work with radio telescopes or X-ray telescopes, for example. Um, so one of the interesting questions that I'm hoping to look at next is exactly how how the switch between radio and X-ray states in these things happens. So how does it actually go from not having an accretion disk, not having any accreting gas around it, to suddenly having gas? And um, and trying to understand that from a theoretical point of view. Cool. That yeah. sounds really interesting. Hopefully we'll be able to interview you again about that in the future. I'd look forward to it. Your next discovery is... <laughs> next discovery, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Charlie and Alex. Yeah, it must be nice for some listeners to hear some new voices for a change. Alex is a newcomer to the Jogcast, and he's hopefully going to be doing some more interviews in the future. Yes, we should well, be hearing a lot more from him. We'll and have quite to get... a few other people. We've got quite a staff staff. Yeah, we've been now, doing we? we've been so... doing some training, uh, so you'll be hearing lots, hearing lots of new voices soon. Um, maybe we'll get some of them doing some presenting as well. Yeah, should be nice. And now we come to a part of the show where we fit in all the other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So I'm going to talk about an asteroid. So this is my third set of odd and ends, and I still haven't left the solar system. Um, I think I'm a bit of a closet planetary scientist, but this asteroid is called 2015 TB145. That's not a code name for Enceladus, then. 
That's not a codename <laughs> for Enceladus, no. Um, it's a lot smaller than Enceladus. It's between 280 and 620 metres in diameter. It's moving at about 78,000 miles per hour. It's in quite an eccentric orbit. It's got an eccentricity of 0.86. So if it was a perfect circle, it'd be zero, and one is effectively a straight line. So it's, it's quite a well-squashed circle. Um, and it's got an orbital period of about just over three years. Now, this asteroid is about to fly by the Earth on Halloween, um, and that has prompted some people to dub it the giant pumpkin <laughs> because of its uh, proximity to that festival. Is it orange? I have no idea. I suspect not. Does it have a scary face in it? Uh, maybe. Maybe it's got a candle inside. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, TB145's closest approach is going to occur at about 5 o'clock p.m. Uh, universal time on the 31st of October, at a distance of about 0 0.003 AU, which is about one and a third times the distance from the Earth to the Moon. Uh, do you know if observers are going to be able to see it from the ground? Well, that's the good news. It should be visible near closest approach. According to NASA's Near-Earth Object Dynamics website, it's going to reach magnitude 10, um, which is quite a bit dimmer than Vega, which defines the magnitude scale. Um, so it won't be visible to the unaided eye, but if you've got even a small telescope, you should be able to catch this. It will be challenging because the moon is about 80% after full, so 80% of its disk is going to be illuminated, so there's going to be a lot of glare. So it's going to be quite a challenging thing to view, and it's going to pass through Ursa Major at closest approach, so the Great Bear. So this is happening on Saturday. I expect this episode will go out after Saturday, so by the time you're hearing this, this has already happened. So hopefully by the time you're hearing this, we'll have some cool GIFs of it, possibly, or, or images of it going past. Yeah, we'll if any listeners have images of it, uh, feel free to send them in to, to us via Facebook or the website. So one of the things I found interesting about this is that it sounds like the asteroid is close enough that it's actually going to be gravitationally deflected by uh, the Earth, which isn't a phenomenon which happens that much in astronomy between individual objects. If you talk about stars in the Milky Way, for example, they hardly uh, get close enough to gravitationally deflect at all. If you look at stuff in the solar system, this happens occasionally, most notably with Jupiter, but it doesn't really happen with many of the other planets that often at all. So it's kind of interesting that it's getting close enough um, at a distance comparable to the distance to the moon that it could potentially be gravitationally deflected. Well, yeah, coming on to the bad news about this thing, um, this was found by PanStars, just three weeks ago on the 10th of October. Now, that's not good, really, because you don't need something anywhere near that big to basically wipe out a city. So if TB145 was in a dangerous orbit, we wouldn't have had much time to act. Yeah, you need a bit more than three weeks. Um, if you're going to send um, <clears throat> someone up and bury a nuke on the on Well, you certainly right? don't want to bury a nuke, but you, what you want <laughs> to do is make it not hit. So the, the thing to do would be to try and move it out of the way. Mm. If you blow it up... Either it'll, if it's particularly if it's made of iron, it's just basically going to laugh all the way down. <laughs> and then I think as, as Phil Plate was talking about this as well, he says you're just turning an asteroid impact into a radioactive asteroid impact, mm. and that's not what you want to do. So the thing to do is to try and make them not hit. And there are a number number of ways um, you might be able to do this. One of which is just to take a spacecraft, put it near the thing. The self gravity of the spacecraft will gradually tug this thing nudge it off orbit out of the way. Mm. Now that's cool. That's really cool if we can do that. Or what's also really cool if we can do that is we don't maybe just want to move an asteroid 
out of orbit of the Earth and on its way into the rest of space, but we'd be really cool to actually bring one into a safe orbit that we can, when we have the technology to do so, go really and mine cool. it for resources. But actually, it's quite common. I mean, we only know, we quite often only know about close approaches shortly after an ast- asteroid has passed us. I mean, this happens, you know, every few years, every few months or whatever. It's it's not uncommon. And this is because they're often on quite highly eccentric orbits. Mm. Um, we only really see them when they're coming at us from the sun. And if something is coming from the sun, it's not going to be very well lit. The trailing edge of it is going to be lit, not the leading edge of it. So we're not really going to see it. And the geometry of something coming towards us from the sun might make it appear as a crescent. So it's there's not going to be much of its surface that's illuminated that we can catch. But this thing's perfectly safe. You know, there's no point going out and selling your house and moving to a mountain or anything. <laughs> we are systematically watching the skies for things um, that might hit us. Um, there's a few projects doing this. One is the B612 Foundation, which aims to find 90% of Earth-crossing asteroids that are greater than 140 metres in diameter by 2025. So there are eyes on the sky. Um but this thing isn't anything to worry about. What it hopefully will be is a cool thing for people to go out and, and watch and hopefully get some pictures that they can send to us. Yeah, uh, that brings us perfectly into my on end. It's like we rehearsed this or something. Um, but it's another eye on the sky. It's the Catalina Sky Survey. Um, and they've discovered a near-Earth object in a highly eccentric or- orbit this time, which was only discovered very recently. Um, it's a piece of space junk, and it's called WT1190F. Um, so it was detected by researchers at the University of Arizona, which aimed to discover comets and asteroids that swing by close to the Earth in the same way that you were saying. Scientists aren't really sure what to make of this thing because it's a little bit weird. Um, so there are plenty of jokes about the letters in its name, as you can probably figure out. And this is because it's it's hollow. Well, it may be hollow. It's about one to two metres in size. Uh, its trajectory shows that it's got low dens- density and that perhaps it's hollow, which suggests that it could possibly possibly be an artificial object. Um, mm. One researcher was quoted saying it could be a lost piece of history that's come back to haunt us. So that's just in time for <laughs> Halloween again. We've got so we've got that's high impact. That's making it in. sound over dramatic. It's really probably um, I, I've read about this too. It's really probably just some booster or something mm. which was used to launch some satellite or some other mission and just ended up stuck in orbit for an extended period of time yeah going into a really really elliptical uh, orbit so yeah the ideas are it could be a, a spent rocket stage or it could be a paneling shed from a recent moon mission um so they found this very recently again and they computed its trajectory by collecting further observations and then unearthing 2012 and 2013 sightings which no one had followed up on so that's a i don't know what to make of that really i guess there's lots of stuff you have to look at how do you even observe something like that? I mean, the, just the density of stuff in the debris fields outside, yeah. you know, the immediate environment of the Earth, it must be really hard to track that thing. I mean, the signal-to-noise ratio really can't be that high. Well, the um, people like the U.S. Air Force have actually built telescopes and programs specialized in tracking base debris. So they actually uh, can not only track, like, uh, giant things like uh, spent rocket stages... But you've eaten small things like bits of nuts and bolts and things like that flying around. So that is another big problem is Mm -hmm. how much stuff we've pumped into our our local orbit. And uh, There is a lot of stuff up there and it is becoming a problem, particularly near geostationary orbit, mm -hmm. the debris fields that is most dense. Wasn't that the plot of uh, a film? Was it? It was the plot of gravity, gravity, yes. Which I haven't seen, but I probably should. It's 
the way gravity plays out is Spoilers. not necessarily no spoilers. <laughs> okay. The way gravity plays out is not necessarily realistic mm. uh, in how they show the Kessler syndrome. But um, and for people who don't know what that is, that is the, a runaway sort of reaction of satellites hitting each other and debris just going everywhere and just so so you end up with uh, something smashes into uh, a satellite orbiting uh, the Earth and turns that into debris and then. That debris impacts other satellites and produces chain reaction. That's the uh, Kessler syndrome. Mm. Uh, and that was the uh, basis for the disaster that we saw in the movie Gravity. It is a real threat, although how realistically this is portrayed in Gravity is up for debate. Yeah. As always with science fiction films, it's hard to get things exactly right. Um, but anyway, back to our comment. Back to WT1190F, which is not a comet. It's a space junk of some sort. It's in a rarely seen, highly elliptical orbit, which travels twice as far from the Earth as the Moon does. And actually, this one is on a collision course with Earth. Uh, but don't panic, because it's going to be impacting the Indian Ocean, south of Sri Lanka, and much of it is going to burn up during mm. atmospheric entry. The researchers say that an observing campaign is now taking shape to follow the object as it dives through the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, if we've got any listeners in the Indian Ocean, it might be wise to avoid joining in because it'll be plunging into the ocean on Friday the 13th of November. So, wow. if you're unlucky. Well. So, are there going to be people out there actually waiting for this thing to come down and, and recover it? Or? I don't I don't know whether they're going to have boats sitting out there trying to recover it or not. It'd be I don't interesting know if to... there will be material to recover. Yeah, there might not be very much. Something quite small, one to two metres in size, is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to burn up quite a lot. When question we can ask, uh, which uh, I haven't looked into, but is certainly worth looking into. Uh, this is certainly not the first piece of space debris to crash in, into Earth, either uh, controlled or uncontrolled. Lots of stuff has crashed into the Pacific Ocean, including like uh, uh, the old space station Mir, which uh, was a news event uh, quite a few years ago. I think How, I remember it, yeah. Yes, when it crashed into the Pacific Ocean. One of the things that we can ask is, uh, did people go out and attempt to recover any debris from those uncontrolled or controlled uh, re-entries? And then, they, and then the other question would be, would they bother with this particular thing? Now, there could be a lot of discussion on whether or not people would actually go out there uh, to look for it. I guess it's always more interesting if it's not something that we've sent up into space. You you want to recover things that originate outside of the Earth. If, but then... If it was an asteroid, yes, it would be very interesting. But then the other aspect... Now, this is probably debris from something that was a scientific mission. But you could imagine that if there was an intelligence satellite or some other type of a uh, highly secretive satellite in orbit. Or a satellite to brew whiskey. Someone might want to recover stuff from that. Oh, well, yeah, no, <laughs> but I was thinking more like a spy satellite or yeah. something. And yeah, yeah. if you could imagine, for example, if... If uh, one agency wanted to recover another agency's spy satellite, it then, would be very... There'd be, a, there'd be a big thing trying to get it before someone else does. Yes, you yes. could, for example, spontaneously find a lot of U.S. military... Uh, craft in the Indian Ocean trying to recover it if they thought there was military or intelligence value to it. Hmm. Interesting. It's an interesting thought, definitely. So, 
What I have today is still within the solar system, although far beyond the orbit of uh, Earth's moon. There were very recent results from the Rosetta mission uh, indicating that they have found the signature of molecular oxygen uh, in the uh, gas from Comet 67P. So the duck is breathing. Is that the, uh, well, breathing? Uh, no, I would not go with that cheesy joke, and I hope that cheesy joke gets edited out. Uh, yeah. um, well, that's up to me, so we'll see how I feel. Edit it. Edit it. <laughs> oh, I heard that in my ears. Yeah. Where else would you have heard it? <laughs> in his knees. In my mind. <laughs> In his scapula. <laughs> Actually, no. Having a niche like in like the below your scapula, especially your left scapula. I mean, wouldn't you want to reach back there and niche it? I don't even know what a scapula is. Uh, sc- the scapulas. You have two of them. They're your shoulder bones. Oh, okay. So cool. like the shoulder blades in your back. So if I if I get an itch there, yes, I'll be a uh, growing wings. I guess like a duck. Like the duck, which is breathing now, which brings us back onto the topic. Which brings us back to, to right. I'm going to start over again <laughs> because I just lost my train of thought. So ESA has reported that the Rosetta spacecraft, which is orbiting Comet 67P, has discovered oxygen being outgassed from the comet. This is molecular oxygen, not atomic oxygen. So it's just like the oxygen that we find in the Earth's atmosphere and that we all breathe. And this is actually quite a surprise because, first of all, the molecular oxygen is really difficult to detect anywhere uh, beyond the Earth. It has been detected in the icy moons Jupiter and Saturn, but not much of anywhere else. And secondly, nobody would have expected molecular oxygen in a comet at all. In addition to that, uh, oxygen is known to be very highly reactive there are lots of examples which are given in the press release how uh, oxygen uh, can very easily react with hydrogen in space to form water, for example, or how uh, ultraviolet light can uh, break apart one oxygen molecule and then the individual oxygen atoms combined with other oxygen molecules to form ozone. So it's rather surprising to find the oxygen uh, being outgassed by the comet and and so the best scenario that scientists can come up with to explain why this oxygen is there in the first place is that it's just uh, incorporated into the ices throughout the body of the comet and that it must have gotten there in the first place when the uh, comet originally formed in the primordial solar system. Uh, otherwise, it just doesn't make sense uh, why the comet should have any oxygen in it at all. And uh, oxygen and water are both very useful substances for us to use for space travel, isn't that right? Oh, so to that... find both of them on a comet. Yes, that's actually a very good point. I thought for a moment you were going to say oxygen and water were both necessary for life, in which case we could have... That would be well, an extreme well, life, I think, living well, on a comet, zooming close to yeah, the sun. Well, I was going to say yes, oxygen sir. were necessary for Earth-based life, and I think there is an argument for like water being extremely useful for any type of extraterrestrial life. Mm. Oxygen, that may be more debatable because that's actually a poison for like a lot of unicellular organisms. Mm. And so things like hydrogen peroxide can be used as disinfectant because they produce oxygen, which kills off 
microorganisms. Yeah, no, I wasn't getting but, that aliens. I was getting but, that rocket. But fuel. to get back, yeah, to get back to your uh, comment, though, yeah, it's um, uh, well, not just rocket fuel, but you know, just oxygen for people to breathe. Even though space missions are typically designed so that people are recycling uh, the earth they breathe, having a source of both water and oxygen. Uh, in space uh, sounds just simply rather interesting. That's really exciting. Maybe we could commandeer a comet as a spacecraft and just shove people on that. They got some oxygen. That's a, and it goes pretty fast already. Except for you would have to go exactly the same direction that the comet is going. Mm. And then you yeah, jump you off when it. it reaches its furthest point. Unless we want to go back to the earlier conversations about deflecting a comet, mm. but then uh, it seems like it would take quite a bit of work to deflect the comet in the direction that you actually want to go. Yeah, yeah, because it's moving very fast. It might be out of the ability of the cast, but I don't know. Maybe in the future. You never know. <laughs> Other things that have come close to Earth recently uh, were the well, was the annual... Orionid meteor shower, which peaked on October the 21st. Did any of you guys go out and look for them? I must admit, I didn't even try. I went outside safe in the knowledge that I would see absolutely nothing. It was quite cloudy. Um, in it was cloudy. Time. It was raining. Um, I live right in the middle of Manchester, and on a good night, I can see Sirius, and that's about it. So I... there was nothing for me to see at all. <laughs> I don't know if that justifies my not bothering to try. Mm. But <laughs> As for me, I live in an apartment which has a view of Ben's apartment building. <laughs> so I would argue that my observing conditions were actually very similar on the same night. Mm. So did you look out and uh, try and observe Ben instead? Ben lives <laughs> on the opposite side of uh, the apartment building from the side that I can view. So basically, we've uh, come to the conclusion that we're all terrible astronomers. Uh, but someone who isn't a terrible astronomer is Ian Morrison, and he's here with this month's night sky. The night sky for November 2015. Well, we have uh, a longer period of darkness now, which is very good. And the, the sky in the late evening is really getting very interesting. Setting towards the west, we have the great square of Pegasus. And close to that in Andromeda is the lovely galaxy M31, the Andromeda galaxy. And on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, I give a chart to show you how to find it. Moving across, we come to higher up Cassiopeia and then Perseus with the demon star Algol. It's an eclipsing binary and very regularly its brightness dips by a significant amount. Between the two is a lovely region where we have the double cluster, the double cluster of Perseus. And uh, with binoculars or a small telescope, it can look very lovely. But then, of course, we have that beautiful region of the night sky rising in the southeast. The constellation of Taurus with the open cluster, the Pleiades. And below and down to its left, we have the Hyades cluster. There's a, a red star. It's called Aldebaran. It's actually a red giant star that's actually in the region of the Hyades cluster, but it's about halfway between us and them. It's not part of the cluster itself. And then if you'll stay up a little bit later in the evening, Orion has risen. The three stars of its belt point down to the left towards Sirius, and below the belt is that region where we have M42, the Orion Nebula. Above and a bit to the left of Orion, there's a bright star called Capello, a yellowish star in the constellation of Auriga. 
Again, that's in the Milky Way, and there's some very nice open clusters there, M38, M36, and M37. And then, just rising over in the east, are the twin stars of Castor and Pollux, the heads of the twins, the heavenly twins. So I do hope you enjoy looking up at the heavens. The other morning, just as I was writing my notes for this particular month, I was up quite early, actually in Sweden, and there was a lovely viewing of Venus and Jupiter together, very close in the sky. And in fact, we do in fact have, as we shall see in the highlights, some very nice conjunctions of the planets coming up. So Jupiter is now a wonderful morning object. It rises soon after midnight by the end of November. It starts the month shining at magnitude minus 1.8. Its angular diameter is 33 arc seconds. During the month, these increase to 2, minus 2 and 35.5 respectively. It lies in Leo, eight degrees over to the right of Denebola, and is gradually moving down towards Virgo before it starts its retrograde motion, that's backwards across the sky, in January. So, of course, with a small telescope, early risers should be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Now, Saturn passes behind the Sun on the 29th of November. It might just be seen using monoculars at the very beginning of the month, just a few degrees above the southwestern horizon, about 45 minutes after sunset. But really, we'll have to wait for a while yet to see it in the pre-dawn sky. Mercury, that reaches superior conjunction, that is on the far side of the sun, on November the 17th, and could not be seen for much of the month. It might just be picked up using binoculars low in the east, about 20 minutes before sunrise in the first few days of November. Now Mars is moving into its current apparition. It rises about 3.30 a.m. as the month begins, shining magnitude plus 1.7, so not that bright. This increases to magnitude plus 1.5 as the month progresses, as at the same time the angular diameter increases from 4.2 to 4.7 arc seconds. This is really still too small for any details to be seen on its salmon pink surface. Venus, rising at about 3.30 again in the morning, starts the month dominating the eastern sky before dawn in a close grouping with both Jupiter and Mars, as will be detailed in the highlights. Its magnitude drops only slightly from minus 4.4 to minus 4.2 during the month as the angular diameter drops from 22.7 to 17.6 arc seconds. One might think that the brightness had dropped rather more than that, but at the same time, the illuminated past of the disk increases from 54 to 63%, and the two things basically compensate each other, so the magnitude stays almost constant. Venus is rapidly moving closer to the Sun, and will have dropped by about 30 degrees towards the horizon by month's end, so will be becoming progressively less prominent. Moving from Leo into Virgo, it passes 0.4 degrees away from the 3.6 magnitude Beta Virginis, that's on the 13th, and less than 0.2 degrees from Eta Virginis on the 21st. It's really a lovely sight to see in the morning sky at the moment.
So what about the highlights? Well, November is a month where we have a chance of seeing some meteor showers. The first one peaking around the 10th of November, which is very good because the moon is new on the 11th, so will not have any effect, is the northern torrid shower. They're actually quite slow. They come from behind the Earth, and in fact you can therefore see them probably best before midnight. They normally give a few meteors per hour. They come from a comet called Comet 2P Enki. The tail is actually quite rich in large particles, and this year we should pass through a relatively rich band, so it's possible that we might see a number of fireballs. That would be exciting. The better-known November shower is the Leonids, which peak on the 9th of the 17th, 18th of the month. The moon sets at 21.30 on the 17th, so that will not be a problem for observing the first predicted peak at 9 o'clock, 21.00 UT on the 17th, and the second early the following morning at 04.00. So let's hope for a clear night on the night of the 17th, 18th. As you might expect, the shower's radiant lies within the sickle of Leo, and meteors can be spotted from the 15th to the 20th of the month. They actually enter the atmosphere pretty fast, about 71 kilometers per second, and they're actually quite hard to photograph. But you never know, you might just capture a bright fireball. Up to 15 meteors per hour could be observed near the zenith. The Lend is famous because every 33 years a meteor storm might be observed when the parent comet 50pp Temple Tuttle passes close to the sun. In 1999, a rate of 3,000 meteors per hour were observed. But at the moment, we're halfway between these impressive events, hence a far lower expected rate. On November the 3rd, before sunrise, Venus and Mars are under a degree apart. You can't fail to spot them if you look over to the east, if it's clear. Jupiter will actually lie about 7 degrees to their upper right. On the 7th of November, a thin crescent moon joins Mars and Venus. Jupiter, a little bit further away now, is about 9 degrees to the upper right. A good time to look for M31, the Andromeda galaxy, and perhaps M33 in Triangulum, is around the second week of November. That's around the time of New Moon. On the night sky page, I give quite detailed instructions of how to find them both. Well, as we come towards the end of November, on November the 25th, the full moon is actually quite close to the Hyades cluster in Taurus. And around the last week of November, 25th to 30th or so, about one hour before sunrise, Jupiter is now getting to quite a respectable elevation before dawn. You can see it above an elevation of 20 degrees for about two hours in what they call an astronomically dark sky. So this is probably the month in which to start seriously observing and imaging it, to see, for example, if the great red spot is still shrinking. Again, the picture of the month on the night sky page is a wonderful plan or map of Jupiter taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. And it shows, in fact, a much smaller great red spot than we've been used to seeing. So quite a lot to see in November. I do hope you have some good clear nights and enjoy observing the heavens. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our listeners below the equator, here's our Antipodean storyteller, Haratina Mugashanu, with the night sky where you are. 
And the music that you'll hear in this month's Night Sky South has been really kindly provided to us by New Zealand composer Rian Sheehan. And we'll add some links to his stuff on the website so you can check out some more of that. Welcome to November. My name is Haritina Mogoshano and today I am your storyteller from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. November is my favourite month of the year. The name of November comes from Latin, meaning the ninth. It was the ninth month from the beginning of the year in March. November is the time when the star cluster known as the Pleiades is visible again in the evening sky. In the northern part of the world, November is a month of contrasts. Too dark, too sharp, frost, mud, Chernozem, dead forest leaves and the river. These are all that I remember was left of life in my November's childhood. And from the clouds to the land, it all felt metallic and heavy. Halloween is the harbinger of November and the Pleiades is its omen. On the other side of the world in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where the sea surrounds us from all directions, the sky is darker than dark and the stars are very bright, we prepare for summer. November here is called Orongo, which means the time after the great rain. Orongo it's spectacular in Aotearoa. It harbors the most beautiful asterism I have ever seen, the grand canoe of Tamarareti, the Waka o Tamarareti. The story of Tamarareti is this. A very long time ago, soon after the first people were placed on the earth, there were no stars in the sky at night. It was so dark that it was impossible to move around outside at night without tripping into things. The Tanifa were the only creatures that were able to move around in the dark. The Tanifa were the guardians of the nature and they liked to eat anything that was moving outside at night. During the daytime, the Tanifa slept at the bottoms of lake and deep rivers. At this time, lived a great warrior named Tamarareti. His house was at the south end of the great lake that we call Taupo. One morning, Tamarareti awoke in his fare and felt very hungry. But when he looked in his food store, he found that he had very little left to eat. As he stood in the door of his fare looking out over the rippling waters of the lake, he decided to go fishing and catch some fish for his family too. It was a lovely mild spring morning with a light breeze from the south. Tamarareti gathered up his fishing lines and baits and put them in his canoe, his waka, and pushed off onto the lake. He hoisted the sail and set off for his favorite fishing spot. When he arrived, he lowered the sail and started fishing. After a while, Tamarereti had caught some nice fish, so he decided to head back to the village for a late breakfast. Unfortunately, the wind had dropped and he was becalmed. The day was mild and it was a long way back to the village, so Tamarereti decided to lie down in the bottom of the waka for a snooze. It was peaceful in the waka, and with the gentle rocking of it and the sound of the waves lapping against the sides, Tamarariti was soon fast asleep. While he slept, the gentle breeze returned, 
and the canoe with Tamarareti on board sailed quietly towards the north end of the lake. Tamarareti slept for a long time. When he awoke, he looked over the side of the canoe and to his surprise found that he was at the far end of the lake. There was no way he could make it back home across the lake before dusk. And after dusk, the Tanifa, the guardians who ate anything that was moving in the dark, would come and eat him. Tamarereti was a brave warrior. He was not afraid of fighting with the Tanifa, but he loved his family dearly. All he wanted was to get back home to his wife and children, to the Ahika, the sacred fire of his family. By now he was extremely hungry. He was a wise person, Tamarereti, who knew that important decisions cannot be taken on an empty stomach. He knew he had to eat. So he sailed his canoe to a nearby pebble beach, threw the anchor overboard and paddled ashore with his fish. There he lit a small cooking fire. He skewered his fish onto a stick and baked them over the flames. When they were cooked, he sat on a fallen log and quietly ate the fish while he listened to the sounds of the breeze in the trees, the song of the tui and the rippling of the little waves as they washed over the pebbles on the beach. It was warm and it felt very peaceful. As Tamarereti was looking into the dancing flames, he noticed that all the pebbles he used for the fireplace were shining bright. Suddenly, this gave him an idea. He loaded as many of the shining pebbles into his canoe as it would hold and pushed off into the lake. He told to himself, what if instead of going back home through the lake, I will sail onto the great river from the sky. Tamarereti sailed towards the river and guided his canoe carefully into the entrance just as the sun slipped below the horizon and darkness descended on the earth. The current of the river was strong and the canoe moved along at steady pace. As the canoe, the waka, entered the sky, Tamarereti began to scatter the bright shining pebbles in all directions as he went along. The wake of the canoe became the Milky Way and the pebbles became its stars. This is why we have stars in the sky. You might also wish to know that by the time Tamarareti had thrown out all the pebbles he had sailed right across the sky and was able to see his village in the first light of dawn. He was very tired so he beached his canoe and tied the anchor rope to a large tree stump. Having secured his canoe, Tamarareti walked slowly to his fare, and, just as the sun rose above the hills in the east, he clambered to the door and lay down on his sleeping mats, exhausted. In just the twinkling of an eye, Tamarareti was sound asleep. Tamarareti slept soundly for many hours. When he awoke in the middle of the afternoon, he found Ranginui, the god of the sky, sitting outside the fire waiting for him. At first, 
Tamaretti was afraid that Ranginui would be angry with him for littering the sky with thousands of pebbles. Much to the surprise of Tamaretti, Ranginui was very pleased with the new appearance of the night sky. For the first time, there was enough light at night to enable people to see what they were doing and allow them to move around safely. Best of all, Ranginui was delighted with the beauty of the night sky. So that people in the future would remember how the stars were placed in the sky and how the sky was made beautiful at night, Ranginui asked Tamaretti if he would allow his canoe to be permanently anchored among the stars. Together, that evening they chose the place in the sky where the wake of the canoe is at its brightest, and there the great canoe of Tamaretti floats peacefully to this day. The canoe of Tamaretti set sail in November from Aotearoa, signaling to Maori navigators that it was time to start planning their journeys back to Rarohenga. Rarohenga means the domain, the rohe beyond the sun, the ra. That is what Maori called the places they cannot see beyond the curvature of earth. If you want to see the canoe of Tamaretti, start from where the sun has set. There is the scorpion, which represents the prow of the canoe, and the sting of it is the beautifully carved wood above the bow of the canoe. A short distance below, Antares is the star at the end of the scorpion's curving tail that marks the place where the bow meets the water. The curve of the scorpion's tail and body sinks into the waters of the Milky Way, which at this time of the year surrounds Aotearoa like a beautiful, glistening river. As water waves move along the side of the canoe, the bright orange star Antares marks the crest of a wave as the great waka rides at anchor. From the bow, the anchor rope is marked by Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star in the sky, and also Beta Centauri. Together these are known as the pointers of the Southern Cross. The Southern Cross represents the great stone anchor that keeps the canoe of Tamaretti in its place to remind us all how the stars and Milky Way were placed in the night sky so long ago. A tall mast rises from the canoe all the way to the star Akenar, which marks the northern world, the end of the river Eridanus. The two beautiful galaxies that we know as the Magellanic Clouds are the sails of the Waka. Atutahi, also known as Canopus, is the second brightest star in the sky and he is the chief of all stars as well as the navigator of the canoe. The constellation Orion makes up the stern post. It is elaborately carved and it goes all the way from Betelgeuse, a red giant star, to high above the water marked by Rigel, a bluish supergiant star, directly above the line of three stars. From the top of the stern post, there is a ribbon of flax blowing out in the wind. At the tip of it is orange Aldebaran, the flax is the Hyades cluster. Still, further left is the Pleiades, which at this time of the year is only marking the feathers that adorn the canoe floating on the ripples left behind by the waka of Tamaretti. Matariki, the name that the Maori sometimes give to this cluster, is only a memory of winter, as the cluster is only called so in the morning of July, 
when here is winter time and it marks the Maori New Year. After Orongo, which is this time of the year, when the Pleiades appears again in the evening sky, the cluster is part of the waka of Tamarereti and seen as a whole, decorating as feathers the waters of the Milky Way. Still six stars are visible to the eye. Dozens are seen in binoculars. The cluster is 440 light years away and around 70 million years old. Polynesian and Maori navigation is very different in every aspect from anything I have come across elsewhere. Intricate and beautiful, it is like nothing I have ever seen. They split the horizon into 32 parts called houses and the navigators watch the stars as they rise from each house. At different latitudes, they will rise from a different house. Looking at pairs of stars at zenith to find the direction north-south, and also at specific zenith stars, they can pinpoint locations with precision. Skybound people, they keep in their minds a vision of the sky above the lands they are trying to get to. And as they navigate, they say that all they do is bringing that vision closer almost as if the canoe is standing still and the land is getting closer and closer, as if the land is coming towards them. And if they keep that image of the place of destination in their mind, they say, everything else is falling into place. I have fallen in love with Polynesian navigation. What comes after the rainiest month, Orongo, is indeed a very special time of the year. I always liked how we can see aligned along the Milky Way on the horizon from south to east the third brightest star Alpha Centauri which is also our closest neighbor at 425 light years away then Canopus Atutahi the second brightest star in the sky also known here as the cat star and Sirius Takurua the dog star the brightest star in the entire sky twinkling like a diamond as the air disperses its light. What an amazing sight! On the opposite side of the sky, the great square of Pegasus is riding the northern horizon. It is not only that we can see the three brightest stars in the sky, but in the same time from here, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we can also see the most prominent four galaxies of our world with the naked eye. The Milky Way, the Magellanic Clouds, and very low in the north, the Andromeda Galaxy, easily seen in binoculars in a dark sky and faintly visible to the eye. It appears as a spindle of light. Saturn is the only naked eye planet in the evening sky. It sets in the southwest two hours after the sun at the beginning of the month. It looks like a medium-bright, creamy white star directly below Orange Antares, the brightest star in the Scorpion. Because it is low in the sky, it will look rather fuzzy in a telescope. By mid-month, it is disappearing in the dusk. Venus, Mars and Jupiter are in the eastern dawn sky. The three planets are close together at the beginning of the month, raising just after 4 a.m. Venus is brightest, with Jupiter a close second. Mars is a fainter red star, just less prominent than Venus. The goddess of beauty Venus and the god of war Mars have a brief encounter, 
on the beginning of November, what we Earthlings call a conjunction. This concludes our podcast for November 2015 at Space Place at Carter Observatory. As the Maori say, the stars are shining in the sky. Was Mother Earth lays beneath. Kia kaha and clear skies from the Space Place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Thanks for that, Harry. And now on to the feedback. First, we have an email from Stephen who says, Hi, everyone. I have a silly question for the Ask an Astronomer section of your podcast. We're answering it now on the feedback instead. I play Elite Dangerous, a game that procedurally models the entire Milky Way and incorporates databases of stars to fine-tune the simulations. I get to rocket around the simulation in a faster and light chip and go and can go pretty much anywhere. Where should I go for a lovely view? Thanks. That's not a silly question at all. I don't know if there are any that are too silly for the geocast. That's a, it's a really good question. We've all got places we'd like to see up close if we could. Mm. So I was thinking about putting this one on the JBCA coffee room whiteboard, uh, as we did with the when is an astronomer not an astronomer question. It's Gavin Mellowship, yeah. Mm. Set a trend. Yeah, yeah, friend of the show, Gavin Mello- Mellowship. Um Maybe this could become a regular feature if we get questions like this a lot. Um, it could be interesting to see what astronomers from all over our department think they would go and see if they could travel at the speed of light. On the other hand, we can think of uh, things that we know in the Milky Way without having played Elite Dangerous. Unfortunately, I've played a lot of Kerbal Space Program Elite <laughs> Dangerous. It's quite hard I'd... to get places in that, though, isn't it? Well, Kerbal Space Program? Yeah, you've got to be quite good. You have to be quite good. <laughs> I have been to uh, EVE. My recommendation in Kerbal Space Program would be go EVE just because sort of dropping through the ultra-dense atmosphere is really a different type of experience. Um, I've also been to uh, EVE's moon, and I've also been to uh, Duna and Ike. Uh, EVE's moon is really funky just because it's like a uh, captured asteroid with no gravity and so like your little Kerbonaut can just jump into orbit if he's not careful. Literally jump into <laughs> orbit. <laughs> but to get back to Elite Dangerous, um so none of us here have played that, although there are a couple other people in the department who I think have played it, like our uh oh, certainly. Yeah. Um I think our one of our computer support people, a guy named Dan Holloway uh, was at least a fan of the previous version of the game Elite, so uh, he may have played Elite Dangerous. But even though we haven't played the game, uh, we at least know the Milky Way. And um, I mean, the silly obvious type things to go see in the Milky Way would probably be the Orion Nebula. Uh, the Crab. The Crab Nebula is a, a big one that we hear bandied about a lot around mm-hmm. here. The Omega Nebula. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you want to uh, travel a really large distance, uh, maybe try the center of the galaxy, Sagittarius A star, which is the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know how interesting that would be. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing you could Depends always... on how true interstellar is, I guess. Or the other thing is um, go out to one of the globular clusters. And actually, the uh, stars get really dense in the centers of some of the uh, globular clusters uh, orbiting the Milky Way. 
And if any listeners have any ideas about where they go, feel free to tell us them as well. well that could be quite interesting. Mm. I like the globular cl- cluster idea. Um, I'd go to 47 Tuck because it's full of pulsars. I could could map them all and then write a really good thesis. So Dave Kings has been in touch on Facebook and he says, Loving getting out on my bike at 5.30 under the early morning stars and listening to the podcast. Especially wonderful looking up at Mars, Jupiter and Venus in the darkness of the Worcestershire countryside. Uh, That's really cool. That's something I used to do when I lived somewhere where I could cycle without getting killed. (laughs) Um, I would just load up my uh, MP3 player with loads of podcasts and cycle for miles and it was great. Also, a friend of the show, Miles Hendricks, said that the Jodcast was one of the nine worthwhile things on the internet. Um, Fiona was quite intrigued by what the other eight were. Yeah, I remember. Um, and so Miles put his list on Facebook um, and said the nine worth the nine worthwhile things on the internet. The Jodcast, top of the list, of course. Of course, yeah. Um, something called Awesome Astronomy. Um, In Our Time on BBC Four. Freakonomics. The Silicon Valley Astronomy Series. And sh- short videos of small animals doing terrible things to people trying to bathe them. Which, <laughs> yeah, I can see why that would be in that list. Um, Star Stuff and The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which is also one of my favourites as well. He also seems to like reporting ads as being offensive on Facebook, only because ads are offensive. That's a cool list. We're up there with some with some big names. So are, yeah. Cheers. Cheers, Miles. Um, it should be a challenge for us, I think, to get all of those nine things into one episode, the Joe cast at some point. <laughs> Especially l- bathing animals. Yes, I'm not sure how we go about that. There might be ethics committees that have a problem with that. But there we go. And then on Twitter, we had one comment from Fred Keish who says, "My goodness, the October 2015 extra episode of Jodcast must have been a big one. Took a long time to download. They are getting quite long, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. We've got and, more to say. Mm. And we also say hi to all our new followers and thanks for all the retweets and favorites." So we've had we've had lots of feedback about Jodcast Live as well, which uh, has all been very positive, and we think that's going to be a thing. Uh, Simon from Salford emailed us and asked if it was going to be something that was going to have a live audience, and the answer to that is yes. It's absolutely going to have a live audience. We went to see the, the room we are going to record in only on this Tuesday, actually, and it's a nice big room, lots of seats, so hopefully lots of people will come along and watch us do that. Yeah, if you think you can make it to uh, Jodrell Bank, on the day that we decide on. It'll be excellent to have you there. If you can't make it, for example, Rob Connolly, who emails in from the US and says he can't, unfortunately, make it for a live episode, but he'd love a video version. Um, we're looking into it. We're looking into maybe live streaming it with some sort of feed so that people can be in contact and ask questions during the show as well. So we've got, we've got some big plans and uh, hopefully it will all come together. Finally, we had an email from Philip Murphy, uh, who actually attended the last Jogcast Live, which was in 2009. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, what was it, the fifth anniversary, I guess? Something like that, yeah. So he was there, and he'd love to come back for another one. Um, he said that Jen Gupta, who used to be in charge of the Jogcast, said it was very hard work. And yeah, we're learning that now. Hmm. Uh, he recommends that we relocate the Jogcast to one of the SKA sites and fly all the listeners out there to see it. You won't see very much. It's, it's just not land, yet. really, at the minute. But if you come to Jodrell Bank when we record this, you'll see the SKA headquarters, which is... Technically a SK site. Mm, yeah. 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 So, so yeah, it, I guess we will be showing you some of the it SK stuff. It won't be much more interesting than seeing some other new buildings out in the Cheshire mm. countryside, but yeah, it is an SK not. site. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, he says... We could avoid singing if possible this time. And uh, don't worry, yeah, we are. We We're are not planning avoid. to sing. Yeah. 
<laughs> not yet, happen. anyway. Things might change. We also had loads of other feedback on Facebook and on Twitter, which was really nice. Thanks for thanks for uh, saying that you think it would be a good idea. Um, and please keep the feedback coming in. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. You can also find us on iTunes. I, I know a lot of you probably download this from iTunes. If so, could you please support us by reviewing and rating us? Because we're currently unranked, despite being, I think, the longest-running UK astronomy podcast. We've done some stats recently, and a fair few people download us. I think we're we're reaching about 20,000 downloads a month, which is amazing, actually, for the combined episodes. Um, so we know you're out there. So please, yeah, rate us, review us. You can find us at Twitter at twitter.com slash jogcast. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jogcast. Please like us if this is your first uh, listen to the Jogcast. You can ask us questions for Ask an Astronomer, and we can ask you questions. For example, things about the Jogcast Live that we're planning. Uh, and you can get in touch with like-minded people. The photo from October's Extra Edition uh, was a really nice one that was provided by a listener, Chris Walker. So if you had a nice photo to share, then uh, who knows, maybe we could feature one of yours on our website in the future. You can also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash jogcast, Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jogcast, and you can send us post, and the address is on the website. Thanks, as always, to Ian Morrison and Haratina Mogashanu for the Night Skies and Sarah Nakuda for the website write-ups. The music was kindly provided by Rian Sheehan. The editors were Benjamin Shaw, James Bamber, Alex Clark, Haratina Mogashanu and Charlie Walker. The producer was Charlie Walker. Until next time... Jordan. Jordan.